0: STORIES, FABLES, GHOSTLY TALES Demons, devils, goblins, vampires, spirits, and ghostly history, all in today's episode. Lovely listeners, I've sourced a book published in 1879 titled Demonology and Devil Law by Moncure Conway. And it's packed with unique and old information surrounding demons and devil lore, as well as the history of demons and their creation in each culture. This episode is a taster of what's to come. I've had to spend a fair bit of time cutting out content that, frankly, is distracting or doesn't clearly describe coherent details, leading to sentences being repaired for them to make sense. And having it written in the old language, I've done what I can to describe words that you might not normally hear or rephrase sentences that have the wrong words, so that the information you hear is actually useful. So think of this episode like a remastered text in the same way that I remaster old-time radio episodes. That aside, there are 12 core demon classifications, of which hunger is the first of the 12, and today's topic. The book also covers off examples of unique stories and perhaps unheard-of stories like Strife, the Hebrew God of War, Barbaric Aristocracy, Job and the Divider, Trials of the Great, The Pride of Life, The Curse of Knowledge, Witchcraft, and so much more. The great part about this book as well is that you get some insight of different perspectives of demons from many different cultures, and the opinions of religion towards demons, as well as how cultures were influenced by their beliefs in demons. For example, the act of cremation was perhaps inspired by ghosts that would possess a body in a graveyard, that would then seek the blood of living people. So from ghosts to demons to vampires, what's the answer then? Cremate the body to ensure that there's nothing to be possessed. So let me know what you think about this episode, I'll do some creepy stories this Wednesday for sure, but I wanted to shake it up and offer something different today. So turn off the lights, turn up the sound, and get ready. For something different. The Demon. Chapter 1. Hunger. Hunger demons. Going by the names of. Kefn. Miru. Kagura. Rahu the Hindu sun devourer. The earth monster at Pelsol. A Franconian custom. Shitan and moon devourer. Hindu offering to the dead. Ghoul. Goblin. Vampires. Leanness of demons. Demons and old Scottish customs, the origin of sacrifices. In every part of the earth, man's first struggle was for his daily food. With only a crude implement of stone or bone, he had to get fish from the sea, bird from the air, beast from the forest. For ages, with such poor equipment, he had to wring a precarious livelihood from nature. He saw, too, every living form around him, similarly trying to satisfy its hunger. There seemed to be a spirit of hunger abroad, and at the time, there was such a resistance to man's satisfaction of his need, the bird and fish so hard to get, the stingy earth so ready to give him a stone when he asked for bread, that he came to the conclusion that there must be invisible forces at work, voracious beings who wanted all good things for themselves. So the ancient world was haunted by a vast brood of hunger demons, There is an African tribe, the Karans, whose representation of the devil, Kefen, is a huge stomach floating through the air. And this repulsive image may be regarded as the type of nearly half the demons which have haunted the human imagination. This too is the terrible Miru, with her daughters and slaves haunting the South Sea's islanders. The esoteric doctrine of the priests was that souls leave the body when the air of breath is quite gone, and travel to the edge of a cliff facing the setting sun, Ra. A large wave now approaches the base of the cliff, and a gigantic bower tree, covered with fragrant blossoms, springs up from Aviaki, the netherworld, to receive on its far-reaching branches human spirits, who are mysteriously impelled to cluster on its limbs. When at length The mystic tree is covered with human spirits. It goes down with its living freight to the netherworld. Akunga, the slave of fearful Miru, mistress of the invisible world, infallibly catches all these unhappy spirits in his net and laves them to and throw in a lake. In these waters, the captive ghosts exhaust themselves by wriggling about like fishes in the vain hope of escape. The net is pulled up and the half-drowned spirits enter into the presence of Dread Miru, who is ugliness personified. The secret of Miru's power over her intended victims is the Kava Root, scientifically known as Piper Mithisictum. A bowl of this drink is prepared for each visitor, and carried to the shades by her four lovely daughters, stupefied with the drought. The unresting victims are borne off to a mighty oven and cooked. Miru her peerless daughters, her dad's loving son, and the attendants subsist exclusively on human spirits decoyed to the netherworld. The drinking cups of Miru are the skulls of her victims. She is called in song, Meru the Ruddy, because her cheeks ever glow with the heat of the oven where her captives are cooked. As the surest way to Miru's oven is to die a natural death One need not marvel that the Reverend Mr. Gill, who made these statements before the Anthropological Institute of London, February 8th, 1876, had heard many anecdotes of aged warriors scarcely being able to hold a spear on being led to the field of battle in the hope of gaining the house of the brave, as the South Sea Paradise seems to consist in an eternal war dance or in one island an eternal chewing of sugarcane it is not unlikely that the aged seek violent deaths, chiefly to avoid the oven. Now, fearful as Miru is, it may be noted that there is not one gracious element of cruelty in her procedure. On the contrary, she even provides her victims with an anesthetic drought. Her prey is simply netted, washed, and cooked, as a man would for his animal inferiors. In one of the islands, Ayut Tadaki, Miru is believed to resort to a device which is certainly terrible, namely the contrivance that each soul entering the netherworld should drink a bowl of living centipedes but this is simply with the one end in view of appeasing her own pangs of hunger for the object and effect of the drought is to cause the souls to drown themselves it being apparently only after entire death that they can be cooked and devoured by miru and her household fortunately for the islanders miru is limited in her tortures to a transmundane sphere A room is present in the sphere, for many dead souls to be caught up in. Then, a sip between her dreadful cup and the human lip. And then the drought takes hold. The floating stomach, Kefan is, however, not otherworldly. We see, however, a softened form of him in some other tribes, with different representations of such demons from other tribes, or cultures. Then there were the Greenlanders, the Finns, the Lapps, conceived the idea that there is a large paunch demon which people could invoke to go and suck the cows or consume the herds of their enemies, and the Icelanders have a superstition that some people can construct such a demon out of bones and skin and send it forth to transmute the milk or flesh of cattle into a supply of flesh and blood. A form of this kind is represented in the Japanese Kagura, the favourite mask of January dancers and drum beaters seeking money. The Kagura is in precise contrast with the Pretas, another demon of which they are 12 miles in height, are too thin to be seen, their mouths being so small as to render it impossible to satisfy their fearful hunger. The is given to demons in Travancore and other districts of India takes us to the blood sacrifices by which the natives satiate the demon, concerning which a missionary naively remarks that Even these heathens recognize, even if it's in a corrupted form, the great truth that without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. The missionary and the natives are referring to the hunger demon. They are the brood of Kali, girt ground with human skulls. The expedition which went out to India to observe the last solar eclipse was incidentally the means of calling attention, to a remarkable survival of the hunger demon, in coincidence with astronomic phenomena. While the English observers were arranging their apparatus, the natives prepared a pile of brushwood, and so soon as the eclipse began, they set fire to this pile, and began to shout and yell as they danced around it. There was a semi-holiday in honour of the eclipse. The ghauts were crowded with pious worshippers. No Hindu, it is thought, ought to do any work whatever During an eclipse, there was also a general tendency to prolong the holiday a little beyond the exact time, when the shadow disappears. All earthen vessels used for cooking were broken, and all cooked food in the houses at the time of the eclipse was thrown out. It is regarded as a time of peculiar blessings, if taken in the right way, and of dread consequences to persons inclined to heterodoxy or neglect of the proper observances Between 9 and 10 in the evening, two shocks of an earthquake occurred. The latter, a rather unpleasant one, shaking the tables and doors in an uncomfortable fashion for several seconds. To the natives, it was no surprise, they believe firmly in the connection of eclipses and earthquakes. Especially notable is the breaking of their culinary utensils by the Hindus during an eclipse. In Copenhagen, there is a collection of the votive weapons of ancient Norsemen, Every one broken as it was offered up to the god of their victory in token of good faith, lest they should be suspected of any intention to use again what they had given away, for the same reason the cup was offered, broken with the libation, the Northman felt himself in the presence of Jotun, giants, whose name Grim identifies as the eaters. for the Hindu of the day, these ceremonies appropriate at an eclipse have probably as little rational meaning as the occasional bellfire that lights up certain dark corners of Europe for those who built it. But the traditional observances have come up from the childhood of the world. When the eclipse represented a demon devouring the sun, who was to have his attention called by outcries and prayers to the fact that if it was fire that he needed, there was plenty on earth. And if food, he would have all that was in their houses, provided he would consent to satisfy his appetite with articles of food less important than the luminaries of heaven. Such is the shape now taken in India of the ancient myth of the eclipse, when at the churning of the ocean, to find the nectar of immortality, a demon with dragon tails was tasting that nectar. The sun and the moon told on him, but not until his head had become immortal. And it is this head of Rahu which speaks now to devour the informers, the sun and the moon. Mythologically, too, this Rahu has been divided, for which shall hereafter trace the dragon tale of him to the Garden of Eden and in the Christian devil, whereas in India has been improved from a vindictive, voracious demon. The fires kindled by the Hindus to frighten Rahu on his latest appearance might have defeated the purpose of the expedition by the smoke it was sending up, and had not two officers leaped upon the fire, and scattered its fuel, was just about the time when these courageous gentlemen were trampling out the fires of superstition, whose smoke would obscure the vision of science. An event occurred in England, which must be traced to the same ancient belief. The belief, namely, that when anything is apparently swallowed up as the sun and moon by an eclipse, or a village by earthquake or flood, it is the work of a hungry dragon, earthworm, or other monster. A story of when the Palisade Mine was flooded and a large number of miners drowned. When the accident became known in the village, the women went out with the families of the unfortunate men and sat beside the mouth of the flooded pit, wherein the dead bodies of the miners remained. These women then yelled down the pit with voices very different from ordinary lamentation. They also refused unanimously to taste food of any kind saying, when pressed to do so, that so long as they could refrain from eating, their husbands might still be spared to them. When, finally, one poor woman, driven by the pangs of hunger, was observed to eat a crust of bread. The cries ceased, and the women, renouncing all hope, proceeded in silent procession to their homes in Palsal. The Hindu people, casting their food out of the window during an eclipse, The Palsal wives, refusing to eat when the mine is flooded, are acting by force of immoral tradition, and so are doing unconsciously what the African women do consciously when she surrounds the bed of her sick husband with rice and meat, and beseeches the demon to devour them instead of the man. To the same class of notions belong the old custom of trying to discover the body of one drowned by means of a loaf of bread, with a candle stuck in it, which it was said, the demon would pause above the body, and the body might be made to appear by firing a gun over it. That is, the demon holding it would be frightened off. A variant, too, is the Persian custom of protecting a woman whilst giving birth, by spreading a table with a lamp at each corner, with seven kinds of fruit, and seven different aromatic seeds upon it. In 1769, when Pennant made his Scottish tour, Pennant was a writer of scientific papers involving paleontology, with his early work being called the British Zoology, which had observations of many different kinds of animals. Journals that really weren't around in those days, and his exploration opened the eyes to many on what animals existed out in the wild, and also made observations about ceremonies and rituals. One such ceremony, the making of the Beltane Cake, on the 1st of May, and dedicating its distributed fragments to birds and beasts of prey, with invocation to the dread being of whom they were the supposed agents to spare the herds. And demons especially love milk. The Lambton worm required nine cows milked daily, and Jerome mentions a diabolical baby which exhausted six nurses. The devil nominally inherits among the peasantries of Christendom, the attributes of the demons which preceded him. But it must be understood that in every case where mere veracity is ascribed to the devil, a primitive demon is meant, and of this fact, the superstitious peasant is dimly conscious. In Franconia, when a baker is about to put dough biscuits into an oven to be baked, he will first throw half a dozen of them into the fire, saying, There, poor devil, those are for you. If pressed for an explanation, he will admit his fear that for this offering his biscuits are in danger of coming out burnt, but that the poor devil is not bad-hearted, only driven by his hunger to make mischief. The being he fears is, therefore, clearly not the devil at all, whose distinction is a love of wickedness for its own sake, but the half starved goblin ghosts, of whom, in Christian countries, devil has become the generic name. Of similar sacrifices, grace before meat is a remnant. In Muslim countries, however, the demon Shaitan combines the demonic and the malignant veracities. During the late lunar eclipse, the inhabitants of Pera and Constantinople fired guns over their houses to drive Shitan, Satan, away from the moon, for whoever the foe, the Turk, trusts in gunpowder. But superstitions representing satan as a devourer are becoming rare. In the church of Notre Dame at Hall, Belgium, the lectern shows a dragon attempting to swallow the bible, which is supported on the back of an eagle. There is another and much more formidable form in which the hunger demon appears in demonology, the fondness for blood. Some characteristics of supreme gods were distributed as a special thirst through a large class of demons, in the legend of Ishtar, descending to Hades to seek a beloved one. She threatens, if the door be not opened, I will raise the dead to be devourers of the living. Upon the living shall the dead prey." This menace shows that the Shaldurian and Babylonian belief in the vampire, called Akaru in Assyrian, was fully developed at a very early date. Although the hunger demon was very fully developed in India, it does not appear to have been at any time so cannibalistic, possibly because the natives weren't great flesh eaters. In some cases indeed we meet with a vampire superstition, this is the old spelling, the V-A-M-P-Y-R-E, as in the story of Vikram and the vampire, and in the Tamil drama of Chandra, where the frenzied Sandramati says to the king, I belong to the race of elves, and I have killed thy child in order that I might feed on its delicate flesh. Such expressions are rare enough to warrant suspicion of their being importations, referring to the Vetala, whose appetite is chiefly for corpses, relating to the poor hungry demons of India, and the ritual of food around that demon. The ancestors of men are satisfied a whole month with teela and rice, and two months with fish. And the Manas people say, Oh, may that man be born in our line who may give us milky food with honey and pure butter, both on the 13th of the moon and when the shadow of an elephant falls to the east. But the bloodthirsty demons of India have pretty generally been caught up into a higher symbolism and their veracity systemized and satisfied in sacrificial commutations. The popular belief in the southern part of the country is indicated by Professor Monnier-Williams in a letter written by Southern India, wherein he remarks that the devils alone require propitiation, that is to say the action of appeasing a god, person or spirit. It is generally a simple procedure performed by offerings of food or other articles that are supposed to be acceptable to disembodied beings. For example, when a certain European once a terror to the district in which he lived died in the south of India, the natives were in the constant habit of depositing brandy and cigars on his tomb to propitiate his spirit, of which was supposed to roam about the neighbourhood in a restless manner and with evil proclivities. The very same was done to secure the good favour of the philanthropic spirit of a great European sportsman, who, when he was alive, delivered his district from the ravages of tigers. Indeed, all bad spirits are supposed to be opposed by good ones, who, if duly satiated, make it their business to guard the inhabitants of particular places from demonic intruders. Each district and every village has its guardian genius, often called its mother." Such ideas as these are represented in Europe in some varieties of the kobold and the goblin. Though the goblin must, according to folk philosophy, be fed with nice food, it is not a deadly being, on the contrary. It is said the gobelian tapestry derives in name because the secret of its colours were gained from these ghosts. Though St. Torin expelled one from Evrux, he found it so polite that he would not send it to hell, and it still haunts the credulous there at Cain, without being thought very formidable. The demon that lurks in graveyards is universal and may have suggested cremation. In the East it is represented mainly by such forms as the repulsive ghoul, which preys on dead bodies, but it has been developed in some strange way to the Slavonic phantom called vampire. Whose peculiar fearfulness is that it represents the form in which any deceased person may reappear. Not ghoul-like to batten on the dead, but to suck the blood of the living. This is perhaps the most formidable survival of demonic superstition now existing in the world. And people who still have in their dictionary such a word as miscreant, otherwise called as a misbeliever, can hardly wonder that the priests of Eastern Church fostered the popular belief that heretics at death changed into drinkers of the blood of the living. The Slavonic vampires have declined in England and America to be the ogres who smell the blood of Englishmen, but are rarely supposed to enjoy it. But it exposes the real ugliness of the pious superstitions sometimes deemed pretty, that in proportion to the intensity of belief in supernaturalism, The people live in terror of the demons that go about seeking whom they may devour. The Watcher beside a corpse is armed with holy charms against attack from it at midnight. A vampire may be the soul of any outcast from the church, or one over whose corpse, before burial, a cat has leapt on or a bird has flown over. It may be discovered in a graveyard by leading a black colt through. The animal will refuse to tread on the vampire's grave." and the body is taken out and a stake driven through it, always by a single blow. A related class of demons are the heart devourers. They touch their victim with an aspen or other magical twig. The heart falls out and is perhaps replaced by some baser one. Mr. Ralston mentions a Mazovian story in which a hero awakes with the heart of a hare and remains a coward ever after and in another case, a quiet peasant received a cock's heart and was always crowing. The werewolf, in some respects, closely related to the vampire, also pursues his ravages among the priest-ridden peasantry of the south and east. In Germany, though, the more horrible forms of the superstition are rare. The Naxerer is much dreaded. Even in various Protestant regions, it is thought safest that a cross should be set beside every grave to impede any demonic propensities that may take possession of the person interred, and where food is still not buried with the corpse to assuage any pangs of hunger that may arise. A few grains of corn or rice are scattered upon it, in reminiscence of the old custom. In Dysedorf, it's believed that if money isn't placed in the mouth of the deceased at burial, or his name not cut from his shirt, he is likely to become a Naxahare, and that the ghost will come forth in the form of a pig. It is considered a sure preventative of such a result to break the neck of the dead body. On one occasion, it is there related several persons of one family having died, the suspected corpse was exhumed, and found to have eaten up its own grave clothes. Dr. Dreyer, an eminent physician of Chicago, Illinois, told me in 1875 that a case occurred in that city within his personal knowledge where the body of a woman who had died of consumption was taken out of the grave and the lungs burned, under a belief that she was still drawing air, and surviving in her grave much after her surviving relatives. In 1874, according to the Providence Journal, in the village of Peacedale, Rhode Island, US, Mr. William Rose dug up the body of his own daughter and burned her heart, under the belief that she was wasting away the lives of other members of his family. The characteristics of modern spiritualism appear to indicate that the superstitions have outgrown this ancient fear of ghostly malevolence when surrounded by a civilization. It is very rare in the ancient world or in barbarous regions to find any invocations for the return of the spirit of the dead. Mr. Taylor has quoted a beautiful dirge by the Ho tribe of India, beginning, We have never scolded you, never wronged you, come to us back. But generally funeral customs are very significant of the fear that spirits may return, and their dirge is more in the vein of the Bodo of North East India. Take and eat. Heretofore you have eaten and drunk with us. You can do so no more. You were one of us. You can be so no longer. We come no more to you. Come you, not to us. Even, says Mr. Taylor, in the lowest culture we find flesh holding its own against spirit, and at higher stages, the household arids himself with little scruples of an unwelcome inmate. The Greenlanders, for example, would carry the dead out by the window, not by the door, whilst an old woman, wavering a firebrand behind, cried, Pickle Roo Pock! There is nothing more to be had here. The Hottentots remove the dead from the hut by an opening broke out on purpose to prevent him from finding the way back. The Siamese, with the same intention, break an opening through the house wall to carry the coffin through, and then hurry it at full speed thrice round the house. The Siberian Chewoshers fling a red-hot stone after the corpse is carried out, acting as an obstacle to bar the soul from coming back. And the Brandenburg peasants pour out a pail of water at the door after the coffin to prevent the ghosts from walking. The Pomeranian mourners returning from the churchyard leave behind the straw from the hearse that the wandering soul may rest there and not come back so far as home. It may be remarked in this connection that in nearly all the pictures of demons and devils, they are represented as very lean. The exceptions will be found generally in certain southern and tropical demons, which represent cloud or storm, and present a swollen or bloated appearance. No northern devil is fat. Shakespeare ascribes to Caesar a suspicion of leanness. Yond Cassius hath a lean and hungry look. He thinks too much. Such men are dangerous. When Antony defends Cassius, Caesar only replies, Would he were fatter? This mistrust of leanness is a reflection from all the Hunger Demons. It interprets the old saying that a devil, however fair in front, may be detected by hollowness of the back, and yet he is usually so thin as to cast no shadow. Illustrations of the Hunger Demon and its survivals might be greatly multiplied, where it necessary. It need only, however be mentioned that it is to this early and most universal conception of preternatural danger that the idea of a sacrifice as well as of fasting may be ascribed. It is indeed too obvious to require extended demonstrations that the notion of offering fruits and meat to an invisible being could only have originated in the belief that such being was hungry. However, much the spiritualization of such offerings may have attended their countenance among enlightened people in the evolution of pure deities, fire, the devouring element, was substituted for a coarser method of accepting sacrifices and it became a sign of baser things, such as the Assyrian Akakaru and the latter Lamia, to consume dead bodies with their teeth. And this fire was the spiritual element in the idolteries whose objects were visible, but the original accent of sacrifice never left it. The Levitical laws says The two kidneys and the fat That is upon them, which is by the flanks and the call above the liver. With the kidneys, it shall he take away, and the priest shall burn them upon the altar. It is the food of the offering made by fire, for a sweet savour. All the fat is the Lord's. It shall be a perpetual statute for your generations throughout all your dwellings, that ye eat neither fat nor blood. We find the hunger demon shown as well in the wrath of Jehovah against the son of Eli for eating the choice part of meat offered on his altar. As in that offering of tender infants to Maloch, which his priest announced, or in Saturn, devouring his children, and they all reappeared as phantoms thinly veiled, were initiates to the realm of sacrifice. Then there is the sacrifice involving Artemis. Through the huntress's fondness for kid's blood, became the priestess of human sacrifices. The human offering deemed half-divine could alone at last satisfy the deity, gathered in his side this sheath of sacrificial knives, wetted in many lands and ages, and in his self-sacrifice the hunger demon himself was made the victim. Theologians had been glad to rescue the first person of their trinity from association with the bloodthirsty demons of barbarous ages, by describing the sacrifice of Jesus as God himself becoming the victim of an eternal law. but. Whatever may be said of this complex device, it is sufficient evidence that man's primitive demons, which personified his hunger, has ended with being consumed on his own altar. For though fasting is a survival of the same savage notion that man may secure benefits from invisible beings by leaving them the food, it is a practice which survives rather through the desire of imitating ascetic saints than because of any understood principle. The strange yet natural consummation adds depth of meaning to the legend of Odin being himself sacrificed in his disguise on the holy tree at Uppsala, where human victims were hung as offerings to him and to his rune in the Havmol. I know that I hung on a wind rock tree nine whole nights with a spear wounded and to Odin offered myself to myself. And this concludes chapter one of demonology and devil lore by Moncure Danielle Conway, 1879. So I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on the demons and the lore covered in this one. For example, one thing I never knew about Artemis was her love for the blood of children. That's a new one for me. And here are some really interesting takeaways from this episode. Ghosts were perceived as being hollow, 12 miles high. No shadow and had no or very small mouths, and deemed to be guardians or demons. What I also found fascinating was how our ancestors would break holes in their houses to carry out the dead, throw hot stones to mislead them, or leave straw on the ground to persuade the dead to not follow them back. Just brilliant. What piece of information did you find fascinating in this episode? So this is exactly the kind of information I'm trying to bring to the surface. So we can find some really unique tidbits of information. Also, here's a quick list of all 12 demon categories so you can hear in advance what I'll be covering. Heat, Cold, Elements, Animals, Enemies, Barrenness, Obstacles, Illusion, Darkness, Disease, and Death. All with their own demons and their own lore. So yes, a lot to cover and loads more content there to dig into. Either way, I'll have stories for you this Wednesday, so have a devilish night, or delightful day my ghouls and ghasts. As always, till next time.